Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today is my pleasure to have Erica T. Worth, whose novel White Horse is a New York Times editor's pick, a Good Morning America buzz pick, and an Indie Next Target Book of the Month and Book of the Month pick. She is both a Kenyan and Silwani fellow, has published in the Kenyan Review, BuzzFeed, and the Writer's Chronicle, and is a narrative artist for the Meow Wolf Denver installation. She's an urban native of Apache, Chickasaw, Cherokee descent. She's represented by Rebecca Friedman for books and Dana Spector for film. She lives in Denver with her partner, stepkids, and two incredibly fluffy dogs. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I'm so excited to have you, Erica. Yeah, thank you for having me. And they are extremely fluffy. Um, and they're behind me. As you can see, probably one of them, they wear clothes and they bark. So I apologize if like an ant um, goes on outside and they bark at it. So <laughs> that is my dog as well. Um, my dog just loves to just yell at anything she sees walking through. It's important. What are your dog's names? I have to know. They're hilariously, they're both um, not just fluffy. They're just white and puffy and their names are Ava and Addy, and that was a pure accident. They're rescues, and so, um, but they both happen to have these. They look similar, and they have these A names that are very adorable and femme, and they're very bouncy. So, yes, Ava and Addy. I love those names. Um, my dog is Calliope. That's great. I was um, just. I'm. I've always been possessed with like naming animals after like you know mythological figures, and I figured what better name than you know the the muse of epic poetry yeah yeah i would say you know i guess you don't want a dog named medusa um, <laughs> here's medusa she will not turn you to stone maybe <laughs> she it, it would be fun to have a dog named medusa though because there there would be like a little bit of irony um because medusa might turn people to stone but then you know the dog like i feel like melts hearts so it's like you know yes. could reverse the stone heart kind of that's an adorable interpretation. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to talk about White Horse with you. Um, this novel that came out last November. Um, it, of course, has won all kinds of, of attention and accolades. Um, it's been everywhere, I feel like. Uh, every time I go into a Target, I see the book and I, I just cheer up a little bit because I think it's so fun to see these books represented. Um, it's coming out in paperback soon. What has the journey been like with White Horse for you? Yeah, and by the way, it comes out, um, they've moved it to October 1st so that it's like dead in Halloween season. It's scary. Um <laughs> to use an ironic word, considering the genre, um, to put it out at that time, and my press is always a little scared to do it, simply because the big boys come out at that time. Mm -hmm. Stephen King, um, you know, you name it. And when you're going up against these guys, it makes it even harder to, you know, to get attention. But, you know, Flatiron's been amazing to me. They're um, a great press. I think um, they've become, their, their team of editors, their team of publicists have become extremely egalitarian and cool and eclectic 
And of course they publish uh, Lee Bardot. Um, mm -hmm. It's like this like phenomenal phenomenon when it comes to fantasy. And so, yeah, they're, they're just a great press. As far as the journey goes, a lot of it for me was, and I've said this in like countless interviews. So if people are watching and they've heard this and they're like, I'm bored, I am sorry. But <laughs> um, yeah, I was a super, super, super geeky kid. And I wasn't even like geeky and nerdy in the sense that I had friends and we all read comic books together. Like even the nerds were like, ooh, we're going to get beat up if she's around. And I was just a very lonely, weird kid. And I loved to read and I loved, um, of course, Stephen King was at the center of this. Um, and but anything that involved dragons, spaceships, and especially ghosts. And I got to college. Um, my parents were like, this is an important thing. My parents came from like pretty extreme um, working class backgrounds. Um, I think they don't like the word poverty, but it, it was there. And um, they, you know, my mother didn't, her parents didn't even have um, high school educations. And then she went and got a four-year degree in education. And then I kind of leapt into a PhD, right? So there's these like extreme leaps by individuals and generations. So, but in any case, when I went to college, Fort Lewis College, it, um, they were not very, it was at a time in which what we're now calling speculative literature was not respected. And I wanted to do my, um, senior thesis on Stephen King and my friends laughed me down and as strong a personality as I was I desperately wanted to be taken seriously as a writer I really did because where I came from people made fun of me for for reading so much I got in trouble for it actually I read under the desk and in math class and so I so wanted to be saved by writing right and I wanted to be a writer and so I think I thought, okay, I have to do this, you know, and I just abandoned and I, I started reading what people call literary fiction, but I would call realism. And finally, um, I, I published with a lot of small presses, what you call literary fiction or realism. And finally, I was like, I don't really want to do that anymore. And I stopped, um, I stopped slowly reading much realism and I was happier. And I, I finally realized like, I can do this and I love this. And horror was really it for me. It's like got a lot of the dark themes that I love and it has, um, it usually takes place on this planet. So like I was familiar with that kind of grittiness and realism, but then there's cool shit like portals or magic mirrors, right? They're just dark. And um, I, I'd been putting together this short story collection that had never worked um, for a long time. It became a garbage novel, then became a slightly less garbage novel. And then I started writing articles, um, trying to help other native writers and create a situation where, because I know there's a lot of pushback from certain people, right? They want there to just be one native, right? And we all got to look the mm. same. We all got to be very culturally authentic and you know, be these cultural lessons for white people, right? And I don't think that's art. And so I started writing these articles saying, here are 10 novels you should read at once. And people can make fun of that, but it had power. And then the, those editors of those people started looking at my work. And then I was working on the speculative manuscript. And I also started working at, on structure. In literary mm -hmm. circles, they could not talk about story or structure in concrete or useful ways. Mm -hmm. I really re wiped that down and started working again. And I had a manuscript, I think, for the first time that had the kind of magic that I was capable of. And I had editors interested, agents interested, and then trolls. So... <laughs> But it's also been like for all of that, um, it's also been wonderful because people have responded to the novel just really beautifully. And that's been great. So I've, I've loved that. Was this your, your debut horror novel or? Um, oh, it was. 
Wow. Yeah, it wasn't my debut novel, but it was my debut horror because I'd always written these kind of dark themed novels, dark themed um, short stories. The po I wrote poetry um, for forever and a year ago, and I just sort of died a natural death. Um, but no, I had really kind of for years um, something had just been boiling beneath the surface, and it it finally came back up when I was ready to like do that. So yeah, it was my first horror novel, first it's, horror. Anything. It's really surprising to hear that this is your your debut horror novel because I feel like so much of the horror is much more accomplished than that. And I don't mean that to be like, you know, a, a diss to any debut horror novel at all, you know. But I think that sometimes um, you'll you'll get a horror writer who is really insecure about the incorporation of horror elements in the story. And I really felt like White Horse understood the assignment in, you know, kind of incorporating those tropes, but being smart about it, you know, really having kind of a, a plan, like a, a, forgive me, a thesis statement, um, you know, for what horror is capable of doing. Yep. I look, you know, and all of us are like my indigenous brother from another mother, right? Stephen Graham Jones, the slasher is his thing. And then he has these supernatural elements. And he's very postmodern in structure. And I'm not, you know, I'm very much like I'll have, well, I mean, I have touches because I like language as a former poet and I like what it can accomplish in short spaces, right? But I still mm -hmm. respect, you know, structure. But when it came to horror specifically, I realized this is what I love. This is what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. I read everybody. I read Grady Hendrix, who's just fun, smart. I, you know, of course I read Stephen Graham Jones. Um, um, Oh, God, I'm forgetting there's a postmodernist um, queer um, black author who, uh, oh God, his name keeps coming back and, and fading away. I read his work because it was different and interesting. I read Sylvia Moreno Garcia and I really sat down too and I looked at film and I was like, okay, mm -hmm. why does this scare me? And I took notes. Like I was like, oh, like you look at the paranormal activity movies because film is just so boom right there. Like yeah. the structure, if you are capable of know, if you know what structure is, and you've read books on structure, like Save the Cat Writes Novels, much as people make fun of it. Mm -hmm. You, if you're looking at film, you can see the structure. And I realized exactly how they built it. And my agent um, was working with somebody with me. And at one point she was like, you know what? It doesn't have to be scary, but if you want it to be scary, it's not quite there yet. And I was like, it's about suspense. It's about a small detail and then mm -hmm. another detail and then another detail. And I really did try to build that, so. Yeah, so I, I feel like this opens up a bit of a conversation about um, this concept of new wave horror and how it, it kind of fits into horror literature. Um, you were blurbed by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, who called your book Perfect New Wave Horror. And as I was kind of reaching through to try to understand a little bit of what new wave horror is, and I want to hear your pitch about it. Um, but I found a just kind of a, like a little mini essay from your friend, Rachel Dempsey. Um, and she said that, you know, in a nutshell, new wave horror is trying to take horror and present it to us in a way that feels authentic to our lives, uh, you know, authentic to our experiences. So maybe not in a literal sense, but in this kind of like personal authentic sense, and she wrote that as readers, the more we relate to these stories, the more potential they possess to scare us. 
the safe distance between their world and ours begins to shrink. And I, I felt like that quote is really interesting and it definitely encapsulates what I feel about White Horse as a novel. So, you know, what is your kind of take on what is new wave horror and how does White Horse relate to kind of this budding um, approach, you know, to, to writing horror in literature? Yeah, let me just quickly say, Rachel's such a smart person and she is working on a novel and I have the privilege of um, working on it with her and her MFA. And she, um, it's like, if you like Simone St. James, right? So obviously mm. she and I are matched because there are literary aspects, there are crime aspects, there are horror aspects. I, as soon as that novel's done, and agents are going to race to sign her and it's going to be so fun and just such a great novel. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, Silvia Moreno Garcia is a great person to start with because she has a near encyclopedic knowledge. Um, I love her brain as somebody who did do a doctorate, right, in literature mm -hmm. because I, 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 I like to think of things the same way. And a lot of people say oh, that's terrible or it kills it. And yes, I have seen that in academia. Don't get me wrong. I've seen that kind of, and, and it's turned, it's boiled down into these gross hot takes on, on social media, right? Especially Twitter. Mm. But I do understand what people say about that. But what I love about Sylvia, she gives me a context and she has such a gigantic knowledge base. And so does Grady Hendrix, right? He's written mm -hmm. entire books. Um, I think, what is it? Paperbacks from hell. Um, yes. But I I think that what she talks a lot about, and I I think that I relate to, and it sounds like Rachel does too, is the fact that all of us loved these. If you read, you know, when the heyday of horror eighties and, and early nineties, and you read Stephen King and you read all of his contemporaries, right, Paul Straub, um, you loved that stuff. You just adored that stuff. It was wonderful. But I think it kind of, on a simple level, it sort of died and became thrillers, right? Mm -hmm. um, he talks about this with um, Silence of the Lambs, right? It really is a horror novel, but it, you know, it's a thriller, right? It's it's billed as a thriller, and we have this renaissance of interest, and a lot of people theorized around it. But I think that, you know, without in any way saying, oh, we're so much better, because I think this happened in the Native American writing world too, like. I wrote these series of articles about the fourth wave of Native American fiction and poetry. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were really offended by it because I they think they I think they thought I was saying, oh, and we're so much better. I was more interested in, okay, mm -hmm. what characterizes this wave? And what are we doing that future generations of writers can take away? And similarly, you have these people like Brady Hendricks is a straight white dude, but mm -hmm. he's writing about the South and he's writing about the accountability that white folks need to have to black folks in the South. And he mm -hmm. does it in such a way that makes the vampire novel fresh. And that's amazing. And it, and a no, I've never seen it before. I mean, someone who knows more probably could say, oh, it's kind of like so-and-so's. Um, and then Silver Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic. Some people love it. You know, some people don't. I adored it. It probably was mm. the most important book for me. And the main character, like, or in some reason, in some ways, not the main character, but the bad guy rather is a mushroom like right. and and i just and yet she completely pulls it off and i just i love that about new wave four it just seems a little bit it's not risky in that way of like more kills more violence right. more. um it's more risky in the way that i think that stephen king would like which is like it's bigger it's weirder mm. um it's more inclusive and and I, I i love that i think that's really cool yeah, I, I think too, you know, what resonates with me about New Wave Horror is just, I, I mean, forgive me, how smart it is. Um, 
I'm, and I don't mean to say that that horror as a genre is dumb, although I do think that horror for a long time incorporates a lot of dumb stuff um, because that's kind of like that's the trope. That's the the fun of horror is is that sometimes it just gets really stupid. But I feel like like what new wave horror does is it it kind of takes and examines those tropes and recombines them and gives them back to us fresh while saying something about our human condition, you know, saying something about who we are and some of the struggles that we have as as human beings living in these very complex systems, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things I think about a lot is somebody who um, I, I, I'm really kind of confused why the word literary seems to be this like, oh, when it comes to the horror, the crime community, <laughs> I'm like, all right, guys, okay, what does literary mean to you? What does it mean? And they're, if you ask people in the genres, they're like, well, they think they're better. And I'm like, do they? Um, well, actually, yes, yeah, some of them do. And if you ask, but if you, if it's any reassurance, if you ask people who absolutely comfortable labeling themselves as literary and you're like, okay, how do you define literary? They're much dumber. They'll say, it's good. (laughs) Or they'll be like, if you really push them, they're like, well, it's about language. Um, And it's because they want, poetry is the first thing that became an art form and poetry is about language and it's about pressurized language and so what happens is the people who want to be taken seriously are associating mm-hmm. with the poets sometimes they'll say it's experimental or postmodern and i'm like no you can do a traditional structure grady hendrix does every time right. chris moreno and it's fucking brilliant the way they yeah. execute it. literary is complex characterization depth of theme and attention to form and language and yeah. i think that um i i think that what's going on is the people in horror now have the benefit of everyone who came before. And they also, because we come from so many different parts, like for example, Gavino Iglesias has a PhD. He has read very, 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 very widely and studied right. it a long time. And so he has the benefit of experiencing things as a as somebody who's a Boricua or a Boricua. And so like mm-hmm. he, you know what I mean? Like he has a lot of really heavy, cool stuff at his feet to pull from. And I think that to me, it's, I don't think literary is a genre. I think that mm-hmm. realism might be, but I think that literary is like, you know, how how deep do the themes go, right? Whereas commercial yes. fiction is just, they don't, and that's okay. It doesn't have complex characterization. It doesn't have depth of theme, but it could be fun anyway, and you could still learn from it. So I don't think, and you can have things that are both literary and commercial. So I don't really understand why the horror community is so whiny about a word that <laughs> no one seems to define very well regardless of where they're coming from so well, i feel like it it you know I, I i'm very fond of the horror community um and and i don't know so much that i see them as as whiny and i don't think that's what you're you know trying to say no it's not fair word yeah um but but i think that um i do see a, a struggle for legitimacy and yeah. And, you know, like a justification, I think, for a lot of writers of like, where is my space on that bookshelf? And um, I think that, you know, unfortunately, the Academy, I, I speak as a, a former, you know, academic myself, um, yeah. we, can, we can have a long talk about, you know, attitudes toward, you know, some of the topics that that I was doing in my PhD program and stuff. But um, I think a lot of, of, academia you know just turns up their nose at 
speculative fiction turns out or genre at all you know like everything has to be straight literary realism or you know for some reason it's not worth their time and i think that's born out of attitudes of the really the cold war um that we've never gotten past we've never been able to push away from this attitude toward genre that you have to justify your position as an academic a little bit i think um especially in a capitalist world of you know late capitalism where we're always kind of struggling to make sense of ourselves in our relation to capital and so there are a lot of academics i think who who had to like well you know it's about language we have to look at the complexity of language because that's a skill a very highly specific skill set yeah correct i i think that yeah to be clear you know i don't think the horror community is at in at in the um in terms of its sum totals whiny at all it's probably the least whiny oh yeah community i've ever experienced like they're welcoming they're wonderful they were nothing but great to me stephen graham jones is literally like the nicest guy ever um and has done nothing but like quietly suffer zero fools and i really love that but um so i just mean that particular word is maybe the word better word is triggering for for some folks mm, and mm -hmm. exactly what I'm talking about i think it was Moreno Garcia, who said that, you know, some of these, I can't remember, maybe it wasn't, but a lot of what it has to do with is, you know, these sort of like cheap magazines that crime and mm -hmm. uh, horror and sci-fi stuff came out in yes. were just cheap and just very available. Yep. A lot of it too, just is simply that, you know, it's like you said, um, you know, honestly, cops and spaceships are more fun right off the, you know, oh, sure. right off the bat. And if something is postmodern and it's about a dying marriage and it says from the first sentence i am serious it's like you say then the academy is like okay everything we're spending here is justified and these people who say we're all elitist well they can go shove it because look it's justified look how hard this is yeah. but that's what's sad about it is that once you push beneath the surface of this intensity of language sometimes the message is like drugs are bad <laughs> and it's not a complicated message. And I think um, one good thing that I'm finding is that the academia is seeming still a little bit to be a little bit resistant to, to crime and romance, although a lot of academics love to read crime and romance, but yes. <laughs> they are starting to realize speculative can be, you know, smart. And so um, I've seen that in job advertisements and what have you. So that's good, you know. Yeah, I um, I agree with you. I think there is change. Like I I have seen the change. I've been part of that change, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, that's not going to stop me from celebrating genre literature every chance I get because I think there's so much richness um, to this this literature that, for whatever reason or another, you know, there are still small communities who are resistant to talking about how good this stuff can be. Oh God, yeah. There's a university here that I've applied to a couple times and apparently there's just someone who's like, no genre, like they just can't get over it. And that's just the end of the story. So what can you do? They're missing out. I mean, they really are missing out. About White Horse, um, we've, we've kind of talked around it a little bit. Um, what is White Horse? Um, and let's maybe jump into, you know, some of the stuff that it tackles as new wave horror. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like, you know, when I had like 10 seconds on good morning America to talk about it, uh, which is <laughs> just literally not possibly nothing more intimidating than that. It's like the log line has to be like two seconds long, right? Like very simple, like 
You know, Carrie is a girl who, um, you know, hate, despises the mother. She thinks abandoned her, right? But when her her cousin finds a bracelet of her mother's and she touches it and her mother's ghost appear, appears, she realizes um, she doesn't know the full story and she has to find out what happened to her mother after all. Boom, boom. But I think the deeper themes are, <laughs> um, and it's funny because, like I said earlier, like I don't think any anybody from any demographic, and I think natives, unfortunately, because real Indians and authentic Indians is such a thing for us, and it's so creepy mm. and gross. And I think it's what some of the bad actors are taking advantage of, right? This idea of like authentic Indians living in space, that mm. you know, um, and our job is to be these cultural lessons, right? I don't think anybody from any background should have to have repeated themes in order to be authentic in, in terms of their demographic. Mm -hmm. But I can say that, yes, of course, I'm interested in intergenerational trauma. It existed in my community, in most Native communities, in most communities at all. Um, and I, I'm very interested in, in intergenerational trauma and how different people deal with it. What I liked about Carrie is that She's not much like me. She's more like the girls that I grew up with. She likes to read and watch horror. Um, and um, I love that. Of course, I have that in common with her. I think she's smart. I like to think I'm reasonably intelligent. But the other thing for Carrie is, you know, she just doesn't want to go to college. And it doesn't mean she's stupid. It means that's not for her. And um, But what she does want to do is just live her life in a way that is comfortable and safe because her life was not that all of her childhood. And so when something like kind of punches down on that and she's forced to confront it, I think she realizes, okay, I do have the network. I do have the resources. I do have the um, resilience and intelligence to deal with this effectively. But it, you know, like in any, any, in my opinion, good book, it, it takes her a journey to find out. So. It, it really is a self, a journey of self-discovery too. Um, I think that was just talked about it. Was it book riot who just blurbed? Yeah. 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 They were, they were talking about white horse as, you know, a book, a, a kind of a, a book of self-discovery or, a, you know, a coming of age story oh, about someone who's not, you know, in their teenage years, you know, coming of age as an adult. And I find that really fascinating. Um, what were some of your thoughts in constructing a story about finding oneself kind of after the fact? Well, let me, you know, I can't help it. I have to talk dryly about structure for at least two seconds, then I'll talk about the content. But yeah, <laughs> a lot of people will argue, especially in academic or postmodern circles, that what you see in terms of Freytag's triangle or in Save the Cat Writes a Novel is mm. simplistic or um it's too, it's too rote, it's too simplistic, um, and that going on a journey in, of discovery um, mm -hmm. is not worth an intelligent person's time. And I could not disagree more. I'm very, <laughs> like, what does it matter? Like, it, it's true. Like, if, if a person, like more literary fiction, it's true. Um, sometimes a person discovers, holy shit, I am not capable of change. And the change is just that internal discovery. And even if it's depressing and sad at the end, that is still a journey. Um, so in my mm -hmm. opinion, there are a thousand billion ways to do these kind of archetypal beats, right? That exist in film, mm -hmm. that exist in, um, in most good novels. And I think that, for example, there's a website I always recommend if you really want to do, if you want to do more of a cloud atlas, that's a challenge, right? So there's this website website called Ingrid's Notes, 
She was an MFA student at VSM MFA, VCM, I can never say it, in Vermont years ago. And she really gets it down to concrete terms. If you Google Ingrid's notes on alternative structures, alternative plots, she will tell you the difference and she will tell you concretely what they are. But does that mean your character is not going on a journey, even in an alternative, like if you have a spiral structure instead? No, mm. I think they are. It's just, it's a slightly different design. But I think most of those major beats are still there, right? Call to arms, right. whatever, you know, so. Well, I, I think, you know, to your point, I, I feel like the reason why this structure is so important is because like we as humans kind of go through that same structure, right? Like there's a reason why it resonates. There's a reason why Joseph Campbell calls this the monomythic cycle, right? Because I think that like we as human beings experience this cycle um, through our lives, maybe not in, in you know, direct translation, but we hit those beats. Yeah, I think that that's what everyone's talking about is that perhaps, you know, like this is sort of the larger job of everybody. And that I think if you're Black and or Indigenous, part of what goes on is we're kind of, if we're allowed any space at all, we're going, wait a minute, that was racist and that's not good. And this is why and don't do that. Um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't the job of everybody to sit down and go, okay, wait, 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 how did this happen? This was happened then, that happened then. Ooh, and in my case, dad did this and it's because his dad did that and we didn't talk about it and that's not good. And it's because he's from there and most people were like that. And then that mm. happened there because blah. And I, I was listening to, um, you know, I love TikTok. I call it Gen Z TV. And all I do is scroll <laughs> on there, you know, and occasionally I, I make a clever little TikTok that one of my my students, Ashanti, taught me how to do. And... Um, <laughs> And um, she's really good at it. And I was looking at um, something Sinead O'Connor was like a sort of a rap or a chant. And she was like talking about generational trauma. And it was like, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about that. Our language is ripped from us, that there was no, mm. there was no potato famine, but it was England just literally doing exactly what they did with the lace and the crystal. It was ex forcibly mm. exporting everything but the potato out of Ireland. And so it's it's treated as some terrible natural phenomenon. No, it was not. And she was talking mm. about we lost her language, we lost her culture, we lost and and the pain of it we can't even talk about. And it was so she was such an interesting person, obviously. Um, but it was so chilling because I realized like this is really the task and the job of everybody. You know, um, even if like I heck, I'm my mom has vitiligo, so now she's she's very white, but she was very brown as a kid and as a young adult, and I'm very light-skinned, right? Like I'm light, light mm. brown. So she experienced more racism than I did. But do I then turn around and go, actually, it was really, it's actually harder for me because I'm light-skinned. No, it is really not. Um, mm. It's my job to go, this is where I'm at. That is where she is at. That is okay. I get, need to give her space to listen to her. And all of us can do that. All of us can say, mm -hmm. this hurts. This is the things that I'm trying to be accountable for. And then I can give space to other people too. But it's a huge job and most people don't want to do it. <laughs> Golly, I mean, you hit on so many things that are just lighting my brain on fire here. There's been this big, you know, push from the Supreme Court. We can't talk uh, uh, equity, equality, you know, equity and inclusion anymore. Diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives across the country are dead. Um, we have, you know, here in Arkansas, we have um, some changing 
educational standards where, you know, really they're trying to, they're trying to turn students away from public schools to private schools where they control the narrative all that more, you know, we see that happening in Florida. We see that happening in Texas. I, I feel like we're losing touch with the reality of, of our current situation and how we've gotten here, how we continue to see people marginalized throughout history and haven't quite realized yet that even us straight, hetero, white people have more in common with the marginalized than we do with these fucking billionaires. It's, I don't understand. I think it's interesting. A lot of like Vine Delore, who's a Lakota scholar who passed away a number of years ago, talked about it. He's like, really, you know, it, it's because there, even though like America was, was a break and obviously it, you know, the price was genocide and slavery, it was supposedly philosophical break from aristocracy, but that memory is embedded. And so it's still a way in which people want to believe they can be the king. And that they would have if they had just taken another turn, right? But I mean, to be fair, like, you know, what it really comes down to for me is like I I will always read and enjoy T.S. Eliot and Ditto for Stephen King. And I know what it's like um to watch things go ridiculous on social media, right? Like someone looks at something um and either straight up lies or twists it or finds one little thing, and they all everyone marches over to somebody to shit all over them for days for no reason. And I think that's mm. yuck. Um, that said, what do we, you know, I, I still think like you're missing out if, you know, you're like stubbornly like, well, I just don't like, I just like what I like. I just, but if every single thing that you like is by another, you think straight white guy, um, mm. you sit there and think I'm missing out. There's so much more out there like that I would really get joy from. I do think that, again, especially for Native folks, people have to start stop seeing us as, and we need to stop seeing ourselves as cultural lessons for white people. That is not mm. art. That is propaganda. And it's not, it, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, and I, I work so hard against it. And I think this is why I feel really lucky that like the other <laughs> Indigenous horror writer <laughs> um, who is Stephen Graham Jones, because mm -hmm. he just is disinterested Matt in every way. I love that about him. I just, he yeah. just won't do it. I think it's part of why his, his aesthetic is postmodern. One of the things I loved so much about White Horse is just how readily identifiable I felt Carrie's life was. Um, and there is so much about Carrie that I think is unique to her indigenous experience that is an indelible fact of her character that I do think shapes the story for her but i think too there's so much more to carrie than just that one identifier and it's in the experiences that she has the places she goes the things she's she experiences where i really felt a connection and i felt that you know i've had similar experiences or i've had similar revelations perhaps they don't occur to me in the same cultural context. Yeah. But I still feel that, you know, this book is is doing a lot to, you know, really kind of dig into the commonalities that, that you know, we, we kind of have and, and the way that I think 
the things she experiences are not so unique, you know, to her that we can't have empathy, that we can't understand the situation, that we can't see the human being in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because there are just certain personalities and obviously I can't help but return to social media because we're all just sort of embedded in it, right? My dream is to like burn it and light it on fire and never come back. Um, but, um, you know, they're these native personalities and they have two modes. Um, I hate white people and this is why. And like 5 billion <laughs> white people love it. And like natives are like, okay, you know, I guess this doesn't even speak to me. Um, and then the second thing they do is, this is what we were 500 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, but 500 years ago, we weren't just a series of roles that were authentically performed. Mm. We were, we had fart jokes and we <laughs> had flaws and we did the wrong thing. And if you read um, David Troyer, if you read his nonfiction, I forget which book he talks about it in. He, he's a fiction writer as well, but he'll talk about how, hey, you know, we're seen as these big environmentalists, but there was a um, area of the Midwest somewhere around St. Louis where we did so much burning of the forests for, you know, that we, they're still like, you know, brownish clouds of this day. And that's pre-colonization because mm -hmm. we're allowed to be human beings. And I think yeah. whenever people act like this is a miracle, um, like, you know, natives will say, well, I want to be, I don't want to be a native writer. I just want to be a writer or, you know, inevitably native, my, my boyfriend's gotten it. I've gotten it. Someone will say, well, don't you feel limited by being a native writer? Don't you just want to be a writer? I'm like, you know, Langston Hughes, talked about this in the Negro mm. racial mountain almost a hundred years ago. He hit every single point that is relevant and we just need to go back to Hughes. Can we all just go back to the Negro and the racial mountain? <laughs> all there. So I love I love that you bring up Langston Hughes because um for a while I I would incorporate him into you know some of my study of rhetoric with uh freshman comp students. You want to talk about a craftsman. My gosh, Hughes is so good. He's never credited, but he's absolutely an experimental American poet because what he did as somebody who is also of indigenous descent, black descent, white descent, but primarily identified with his, you know, African roots was look at what is indigenous to the African people of the African American people of this country. And that is jazz mm -hmm. and that is blues. And what he did was mm -hmm. an entirely new aesthetic based on an indigenous, you know, um, black American aesthetic. And I love him for that. I just think he's, and he's moving and he's, he's human. He's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of like moving and human, you know, I, I really wanted um, to kind of dig into some of the, you know, some of the the themes that maybe aren't the primary themes of white horse, but, but that also kind of show up. Um, I felt, you know, kind of this, gosh, this profound, um, I, I hesitate to call it nostalgia. Um, although I think there is a nostalgic longing in white horse, but, but really almost like a kind of a reconstruction of the self through the spaces that we inhabit, you know, what, what were some of the thoughts that you had with Carrie and taking her to these various, um, kind of sites um call it the the overlook hotel or you know a, a dusty bookstore or you know the white horse itself which is this this bar that she kind of haunts um and can't quite give up about you know herself and uh her her community yeah i think what it is is like urban indians are not talked about and if they're talked about it's like oh yes through the relocation um programs that existed mainly in the 50s where 
they try to like collapse reservations and get natives to assimilate. And that is relevant and important and is part of urban Indian communities. But there are also communities that rose up in Chicago and Minneapolis mm. in LA in Denver and Albuquerque and absolutely in Houston and Dallas where people like my family, right, they're coming in from Northern Mexico or parts of Mexico that's still happening. They're of indigenous descent. They're coming during these, you know, the Trail of Tears, supremely messy situation. It was mm. different for every tribe. It was, um, the, every tribe negotiated a different thing um, before Texas was really Texas. Um, you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe existed right before that. The, the, and Jackson was like, yeah, you know, you're not going to be able to own these properties anymore. Some that you can't have your, um, autonomy anymore, your sovereignty. Some mm. natives were like, you know, I am going to stay here because I'll lose my, I'll lose my, my land, but I'm not going to lose my language in my community. I'll get in these little spots like in North Carolina. Some of them went to, um, you know, went to Oklahoma, right? Because in these, in the Trail of Tears, which is a miserable, you know, relocation process because they were going to be able to be supposedly in a sovereign space again, which they lost a lot of that once they got there. My family went to Texas. That was an option. Um, it did happen. Um, and so what's happened in all these different places and these different migrations is the urban Indians have existed um, for a long, long time. And culturally, my family does come from that. And there was an extreme mixing with Black culture too, because they were also mm. in those urban Basis. And it is absolutely not talked about. Day schools in this country are rarely talked about. Mm. Um, boarding schools are talked about, finally. Um, but yeah, that culture really exists. And I think that Carrie doesn't think a lot about it, but it's mm. just part of who she is, right? It's just organically part of who she is. But I think for Denver, right, the White Horse is the Indian bar that has existed for generations. I've been to it. It just closed recently and it's kind of sad um, because it's such an Indian, just organic Indian space. And um, you can just be yourself there, right? There were big, whenever there was a big powwow, you go to the White Horse after and everyone would gather. And since Denver's a place that, you know, you can come in from the Southwest um, or from the Plains or from Oklahoma and it's a big city, you can get a job. It's it's mm -hmm. long been this place of like native cultural mixing. Um, and of course it has the Sand Creek Massacre as its backdrop as well. But I think that for Carrie, she just loves her city. This is part of who she is. And that's sort of interwoven naturally in with who she is. But on a on a sort of craft level, a lot of it for me was I realized after one of my friends, um, Bob, actually his name is Bob, and he and Johnson, he went to the Iowa workshop in the 70s and he's a brilliant writer. He was like, you know, Erica, so much of your book just is conversations in rooms. And this is before it turned speculative. And that mm. kind of happened. And I was like, he's right in his nice way, he's saying it's boring. And I was like, how do I make active settings? How do I create an active setting? And mm. I let that imaginative thing that I was pulling from and always had, you know, I decided like, how can I get that and put that in Denver? So I try to have fun settings where action occurs, but not just like shoot, shoot, gun, gun, stab, stab. Because <laughs> I'm less interested. I'm not against it. It's I'm not like, it's bad. I'm more like, it's boring. It's as boring to me as talking in a room. And so I, I found these sort of like action needs to happen in a setting that's interesting and unique to the character in the book. Mm -hmm. And then I almost worked with Helen O'Hare at Mulholland and she was saying, I love these settings, but the problem is they're not meaningful to her journey. And so I had to learn mm. how to tie these things to the plot. And I already had like 
I'd already been watching Lovecraft Country where you have these like fabulous clues and active, um, these wonderful objects of mystery. And I was like, you know what? That's mm. what I'm going to do. And so that's how that kind of all came together. And then the new book I'm working on, like I'm, I'm trying to do that again, right? So we'll see. Yeah. In a way, I, I think what you've done too, you know, quite wonderfully is I feel like you give us more of Carrie in each of these locations too. You know, I, I feel like, I don't know, just grounding the action so much in a space, you know, also tells us so much about the character and adds dimension, adds, you know, to, I think, this character's journey and and to our understanding of, of her situation. So, I mean, it's it's very well done. Tell me more about your upcoming novel. I want to hear about this new project. Yeah, I just, I signed a contract a while ago um, with Flatiron for a new one. So that's cool. I sold it on spec. It's called Room 904. I wanted to call it Psychomantium because I just love that because it's like traffic. Oh, that's a great word. goes, right, I love it. And my editor was like, mm, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I was like, all right, okay, maybe I'll use it for something else later down the road. And he, he knew I loved King. So he was like, how about Room 904? Because it's sort of a King homage. But mm. in Long, because I'm not as Good Morning America buzz pick quick about it because I'm still working <laughs> on it, reaching the end. Um, but essentially, it's about a woman who, she's sort of the opposite of Carrie. She grew up in Denver. Um, her uh, She was uh, getting her PhD in psychology. Her mom was a newspaper worker. Dad's a, a scientist. Um, and her mom and her sister are just really into the paranormal. And they're like, we hear ghosts and we see dead people. And the main character's like, that's ridiculous. And no. And so the night that she's finishing her PhD in uh, psychology and she's celebrating, her sister calls her who's been in and out of rehab and she didn't realize she was kind of into what she considers a cult um, called the Sacred 36. And she's like, if you don't get to the Brown Palace, which is this famous old you know, hotel in Denver, I'm going to die. And the character's like, I'm drunk. You're ridiculous. Come here. She goes to sleep and her sister shows up as a ghost. And she's like, oh God. So it like turn when her sister dies, it this traumatic event like turns her powers on. And she has literally no choice um, because her career in academia is essentially dead because she can't do it anymore. Ghosts are floating in and out of her life. Her mom has fallen apart because she's already lost her husband. She, now she's lost her daughter. And she's like, okay, I have this gift. I'm just going to become a paranormal investigator. So when the Brown Palace calls her and is like, you know what? A woman dies every five years in, in this room 904. You do what you do. You want to come in. And she finds out her sister is now haunting room 904 where she died. Oh wow! And they're like, it is going to happen again. And you need to solve this, this problem, this crime, or it's going to happen again. And she's like, I don't want to do this. Oh my God, this is awful. And then she's like, I don't, I don't think so. And so that, but then her mother checks in and reappears in room 904. And that's the woman who dies three weeks later. So she realizes she has three weeks to solve this thing or her mother's going to die. So she takes it on. Fascinating. Um, what, so when is this book uh, kind of scheduled to come out? Sometime in 2024. Okay. So we'll ha definitely have to look for Room 904 in 2024. That sounds great. I'm excited about it. Well, um, I feel like I've I've eaten up a lot of time and 
Um, thank you so much for coming on and just for sharing yourself and sharing your thoughts. This has been a really delightful conversation. Um, I hope, you know, maybe in 2024, we can, we can talk about room 904. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been a delight on my part as well. And thank you so much. I, I, I always enjoy these things, you know, to some degree, but this has been extremely joyful. <laughs> well, I, I love that. I, I will, uh, I will carry that around all day. Um, where, before we go, where can people find more information about your upcoming projects or if they want to follow you online, presuming they're not a troll? I do have a website and I primarily, I would say use Instagram at this point. I've thought about killing everything, but Instagram. So I would say find me on Instagram. I am on threads. I am on blue sky. I'm on Twitter, but I'm, I'm most active on Instagram. Awesome. And if you haven't read White Horse yet, comes out in paperback October 1st. That's right. Uh, listener, go find this book. Uh, if you can't find it at Target, pick it up October 1st in paperback. It is definitely well worth the journey. Thank you, Erica, so much for today. Thank you so much. Thank you.